Hi, I'm Grace Savage. I'm the youth pastor here at Trevecca Community Church, and we are so grateful that you're joining us today as we dive into God's Word. Each week, we'll be streaming our service live just for you. We're so grateful that you've decided to join us as we grow together. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet, whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that, that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the sharing of His sufferings by becoming like Him in His death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have laid hold of it, but one thing I have laid hold of, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal, toward the prize of the heavenly calling of God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You are God's good work. Did you know that? You are God's good work. And because God is at work in you, you are able to work like Christ. That is really good news. We're in a series talking about good work. And we're describing good work as so much more than our jobs or our employment status. We're talking about good as things that are ordered toward God's life-giving purposes. Not just things that I like or things that are popular in a moment, but things that are ordered toward God's life-giving purposes. And when we talk about work, we're describing the tasks, practices, and deeds that make up a life. Work can be a lot of different things, not just where you get a paycheck. The tasks, practices, and deeds that make up a good life. And we've been examining the American obsession with work, or employment, I should say, and the temptation to turn our desks into altars, to expect that our job ought to be where we find our meaning and purpose and our identity in the world. And so I hope that catches you up a little bit, if you haven't been with us for the last few weeks in this series. 
For many of us, our first jobs are where we first learn to come to understand the value of things. Uh, we're at a really fun age with our kids right now. They're, they're 10 and 11, and they're finally at an age where they get allowance, and they can do chores and earn a little bit of money for their chores, and they have to figure out what that money, what, like, what the value of it is, how hard they have to work to be able to use that money to buy the things that they want to buy. And so part of it is that, you know, every week there's allowance money, there's chore money, and we take a tenth of that, put it aside for tithe. And then they take another portion of that and they put it into savings. And then with what they've got left, they've got to decide, like, how, what do I value enough for all of this hard work that I've put in? What do I value enough to use this money to buy? So for instance, is it really worth it? to clean that bathroom to buy two bottles of Prime, right? Which apparently is the new Gatorade. I had no idea what Prime was until it was a thing that they had to have. And it's way more expensive than Gatorade, which is fine if you're willing to clean a bathroom for it. You know what I mean? Like our first jobs are where we come to learn value. <laughs> like how we value things, how, what we're willing to work for, and what we're just not willing to work for. We learn value through all of these things, right? Uh, there, there's an old show which uh, I, I'm going to tell a little story from. does not mean that I am endorsing this show or encouraging you to watch it. But there's a show in which two young people are in their first job. They're learning the value of money and hard work. The characters' names are Maybe and John Michael. And Maybe and John Michael, they're working at their family's banana stand along the beach. When they realize, working at this banana stand, that they would like to eat one of the chocolate-dipped bananas. But they don't have the money for it. They haven't been paid for their work yet. And so if they're going to eat one of these bananas, how are they going to make the, the cash register add up at the end of the day? And so maybe turns to John Michael and says, well, I've got an idea. You know, if, if for every banana there's a dollar that goes with it, let's just take a banana. And then so the cash register balances out at the end of the day. We'll also take a dollar out of the cash register. Well, to a hungry John Michael, that sounded like it made sense. And so they ate a banana and they took a dollar out of the cash register and put it in their pocket. Are you understanding their math? <laughs> and so then they thought, wow, that's a real great deal. A and then they're looking up and down the boardwalk and realizing, you know, there are other things we'd like to buy here. Uh, and maybe we would like to go and treat ourselves to lunch down there, but how are we gonna get money? I've got an idea. Let's just take a few more bananas throw them in the garbage, and take a few more dollars out of the cash register. And so they continue all day like this. Every time they would toss a banana, take a dollar. Toss a banana, take a dollar. And they are set. They, they've got flush money in their pockets, and in their minds, the math works. And at the end of the day, when John Michael's dad, who is the boss of the banana stand, comes to check it all out, the math is going to work, and there will be an equal number of dollars and bananas. Do you see the problem with their math? Well, they didn't see the problem with their math until finally the end of the day, John Michael is raising questions and says, I, I just, I don't know if this works. 
But at this point, they had invested so much in this project, it had to work. And so maybe assures him, trust me, the math works. For every banana, you take a dollar. Every banana, you take a dollar. But finally, at the very end of the day, John Michael is able to help her see the light. The math does not work. They have actually doubled their losses. They have thrown out their, their profit, and they, they've, they've doubled their losses, and they are in deep at this point. Like, they are in really deep, and they know at the end of the day, when dad comes back, he's going to be able to tell that they have really messed up. They are in so deep because the math just doesn't work. Now, I'm not a math whiz. Math was never my best subject, but I do know enough to know that that was real funny math that they were playing at. I know enough about math to know that, that they got it really wrong. And it took all day until the end of the day for them to realize that they had their math wrong. The passage of scripture that Larry read for us is from the book of Philippians. Paul is writing a letter to the church in Philippi. He's writing a letter to a church that he loves dearly a church that he has labored alongside. They have done good work together for the sake of the gospel. And he's worked alongside people like Lydia, the cloth trader, and and the jailer and his family. These are hard workers, people who have been obedient, willing to do whatever Paul has asked them to do. They are willing to do good, hard work. But as we learned last week in Philippians chapter 2, even though they are willing and they're obedient to do the work, they don't maybe always have like the mind of Christ with the way that they do the work. I mean, they'll, they'll do the tasks, they just don't always seem to do them the way of Christ. They don't have the mind. Last week we, were, we learned that Greek word phronane, right? Like the, the way that Christ would think about, act in, make sense of the world. They don't have the mind of Christ. And so in chapter two, Paul makes this powerful appeal to them that we read last week. Paul says, let the same mind, phronane, way of thinking about and acting in the world be in you, that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself, taking the form of a slave. I already read that part. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that was above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul explains this to them. doesn't just explain. Paul sings this to them. This would have been a song that they would have known but now Paul is, he's already explained, he sung this Christ hymn to them saying, have this mind, share this phronane, this way of thinking about the world among yourselves. Well, now in chapter three, Paul says, let me tell you how it happened for me. Let me tell you the story of how I went from having my former mind my former way of thinking about and making sense of the world to the mind that I have today in Christ. Let me tell you how it happened for me. 
And Paul begins to tell his own story. And as he's telling his story, Paul takes an inventory of his life. He takes an inventory of his life before he met Christ when he was known as Saul. And he basically is adding up Saul's life's work. He's taking an inventory and adding up Saul's life, and here's what it adds up to. He says, I, if anybody has reason to boast, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, which apparently for ancient Israelites is the first thing you brag about. Um, circumcised on the eighth day. It was a big deal. It means that you were holding to the letter of the law, right? From basically the time he was born, he has kept the law. He was a, a people of it, part of the people of Israel, part of the tribe of Benjamin. He knows who he is and who he is from. He's a Hebrew born of Hebrews. He's a Pharisee, which means he doesn't just know the law. He is a teacher of the law, respected as a teacher of the law. He's a persecutor of the church, meaning he's not just going to talk about the law. He's willing to go after people who are not practicing the law in the way he sees it. And he's blameless under the law. This, this is Saul's inventory. This was everything that he had gained. Another way to put it, perhaps, this is Saul's life's work. This list here is what his life's work has amounted to. And he's taking inventory of his life's work, what he's valued and what gave him value. Well, if we were to look back to the book of Acts, where we read some of the stories about Saul before Saul became Paul, if we were to look back in Acts chapter 6, we would see a little bit more about Saul's value system when Saul's value system was put on trial with the trial of a man named Stephen. Anybody remember the story of Stephen in Acts chapter 6? If you don't, aren't familiar with that story, maybe this afternoon, open up to Acts chapter 6 and 7. Read, it's an incredible story. But Saul would have been at the trial of a Christ follower named Stephen. And he would have heard how Stephen had, had been feeding the widows, but both the Hebrew widows and the Hellenist widows, and bringing these Hebrews and Hellenists to the same table to eat together, creating opportunities for contamination, bringing the wrong kinds of people to the tables of Israel, possibly violating the law of Moses by serving the wrong kind of people. And they accused him of speaking against the temple and changing the customs that Moses had handed down. In other words, Stephen seemed to be working against everything that Saul had built his life on, working against Saul's life's work. Stephen and these Christ followers were devaluing Saul's life's work. Everything that Saul had spent his life working toward, building up all the practices and tasks and deeds that made up his life were being devalued by Stephen and these Christ followers. And to make matters worse, we get to the end of Acts chapter 7 after Stephen's been on trial and he's given this big, bold speech and he gets to the end of his speech and the scripture tells us that Stephen dares to stand in front of the council and say, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You are forever opposing the Holy Spirit just as your ancestors used to. 
Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one. And now you have become betrayers and murderers. You are the ones who receive the law as ordained by angels, and yet you have not kept it. Those are some spicy words. Stephen is accusing Saul of his entire life's work working against the kingdom of God. In other words, here's how Stephen sees Saul's inventory. He might have been circumcised on the eighth day, but he's uncircumcised in heart and ears. He might be of the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin, but those are the same ancestors that oppose the Holy Spirit, just like he is doing now. He might be a Hebrew of Hebrews, born of the Hebrews, but congratulations, they're stiff-necked people. He might be a Pharisee, that's fine, but they are just like the ones who persecuted the prophets. And now here he is persecuting the church. Well done, betrayer, murderer. He may say that he is blameless under the law, but no, he just received the law. He has not kept it. Do you see how Stephen's whole speech is essentially saying that Saul's life's work adds up to less than nothing. Stephen is saying that in his cost-benefit analysis, Saul's life's work is rubbish. So Saul must find Stephen guilty of blasphemy. Stephen has to be a liar. Because if Stephen's not a liar, then Saul's life's work is rubbish. If you know the story, you know that Stephen is found guilty and Saul is actually standing nearby holding people's coats so that they can have full arm rotation as they hurl stones at Stephen and kill him for his blasphemy. I wonder if Saul was standing there that day holding coats as as Stephen's life is fading away, trying to convince himself that the math adds up. You know what I mean? I wonder if Saul is standing there holding the coats and watching this go down, a man who has been feeding widows and just needing to believe, trying to convince himself, it really does add up. I'm, I'm, I'm sure of it. I'm sure that the math adds up. How do you walk away from your life's work? I mean, what would it take for someone to walk away from their life's work to admit that the math does not add up, that they've gotten it wrong? We are made for good work. You know that? I think we're made for good work. We're wired for it. I hope in this series it hasn't sounded like we are saying that work doesn't matter, that jobs and employment doesn't matter. That's not at all what we're saying. In fact, work is very important. We are made for good work. There are so many studies that have been done to try to calculate just how much work is good for a person. And spoiler alert, Sabbath is always really important to good work in every culture around the world. Some kind of practice, like the biblical practice of Sabbath, helps us work better. 
But there's also been studies that have been done to find that people who have good work that inspired them are people who thrive, who find themselves to be happier with life, more satisfied with family and all the other things of life. Good work is important. And it's why some people, when you are out of work or not able to do the work that you love to do, that can be a real struggle. And it's why others who even late in life continue to do good work because it energizes them. In fact, we have some folks here in our congregation who are doing good work. I think about H. Ray Dunning teaching Sunday school class, speaking at family camp, teaching at theology conferences well into his 90s because it is good work. And he is at his prime in his 90s right now. It's good work and it energizes him. We need good work to do. But having the mind of Christ gives us a completely different value system with which to assess good work. Which can be incredibly freeing, but it also comes at a cost. The cost is counting our losses. Counting our losses for losses. See, that's what Paul is doing in Philippians chapter 3. He's counting up his losses And he's acknowledging that everything that he had worked so hard for was like throwing out a banana and taking a dollar out of the cash register, right? Like it did not add up the way he thought that it did. And so now Paul, later on in his life, he's come to realize that everything that he has been working at, that it was all rubbish. But it doesn't mean that he just gives up working. And maybe that's one of the things that keeps us from admitting that the math in our life does not add up. Like we're afraid that if we admit that the math doesn't add up and that the things that we valued are not as important as we thought they were, then we'll just become lazy. And we'll just sit around and say, well, I'm not gonna work at all. But Paul says, in fact, that now that he's understood what true value is, now he strives. He is pressing on as if to to make the goal because that is where Christ is. Now that he understands where the value system is pointing towards, it's as if he is working harder than ever, but it is good work. He understands what the work is for. It's hard to acknowledge when your losses are losses and to change course. For Saul, who's now Paul, it took a pretty dramatic moment It took becoming blinded on a road one day after a crazy encounter with the risen Jesus. Saul, now Paul, had this lightning bolt moment where it kind of zapped him into seeing just how wrong his math was, that it didn't add up, that his life's work was trying to keep the people of God pure and blameless by keeping the law of Moses, but he was missing the righteousness of faith that comes from God in Christ Jesus that can't be contaminated by the wrong kind of people. And so he was missing the righteousness that changes the math. So that when you add it all up, there are not any wrong kind of people in the equation. And now that he sees the value of knowing Christ, now that he sees what incredible value that is, it is like knowing Christ floods the market and completely changes the calculus. Nothing is as it was before. The thing is, most of us, we don't get a lightning bolt moment. Oh, we want one. (laughs) We ask for it often. Lord, would you just give me the lightning bolt moment that shows me what really matters? Most of us don't necessarily have a lightning bolt moment. 
that helps us see what we need to see. And it's really hard to admit that our life's work doesn't add up the way we thought it did. Here's what that might look like for many of us. We're told from our youngest days to find meaning and purpose in our job or our occupation, in our work identity. And if you don't believe me, uh, what's the the question you ask most school-aged children? What do you want to, and what's the verb we use? Be. What do you want to be when you grow up? When you ask a child that, do you imagine that their answer is going to be, I want to be found in Christ? Maybe we should stop asking that question, right? But from the youngest of age, me for sure, from the youngest of age, I was asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? As if who I am will one day be found in who writes my paychecks, right? That's what we ask kids from the youngest of age. So we grow up in this world believing that our identity, our purpose in life is found in our occupation status, in our employment status. And maybe we grow up in the church and maybe we don't. But regardless, we grow up believing that our jobs are really what define us. And even if we do grow up in the church and if we are Christians, sometimes we still believe that it's our job that gives us the freedom to buy food and housing and even be able to maybe give some of that money back from the church, maybe be able to use some of that free time for the church. Maybe we choose to use some of our expertise for the church, right? We choose to give some of our our free time and service to Christ. But in this economy, it's still our employment status that creates our identity. And Christ becomes just another commodity that we can choose to place on our inventory list. Is this making sense? Christ is just another box to check on the inventory list. Your job is what provides you with your free time, your food, your housing, your medical needs, and your ability to participate in a little bit of Jesus stuff if you want to. And your job provides all of that. Paul has had this moment when suddenly he realizes that math does not add up. In fact, one Bible commentator put it like this. He said, Christ is no longer a commodity to be gained, but a place, a home where the lost Paul might be found. This is what Paul is expressing in Philippians 3, that he has finally found. He's not just been corrected and told that he's gotten it all wrong, that his math doesn't add up, but he's actually been found. He's been found in Jesus, and this has created a whole new value system. He has a whole new mind of the way that he looks and processes the world and what work even means. In Christ's new value system, knowing Christ is everything. Knowing Christ is everything, and so then the things that have value now are being found in Christ. Having righteousness, not by my own works, but righteousness that comes from God in Christ. Having the power of resurrection, the resurrection power of Jesus that of course then also involves sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. This is what has value now. It's a completely different value system. Back to the banana stand real quick if you'll allow me. Our characters maybe and John Michael 
they're finally caught with their funny math. Uh, or they're about to be caught for their funny math. And they're terrified. They're absolutely terrified that they will be caught and found out. But before the day of justice can come, the banana stand burns to the ground. The banana stand burns to the ground with all of the inventory with it. The banana stand burns to the ground. Which is really hard on the whole family because there was always money in the banana stand. And this silly show, and it is a silly show, but this silly show, suddenly you realize is actually about a family trying to come to grips with the fact that they have built their life on a lie. They built their life on a lie. And that even when the cash flow was good, it never really added up. And everything that they have worked for is like rubbish. We don't always get a lightning bolt moment. But sometimes we are so stubborn that it takes something burning to the ground to finally figure out the math doesn't work. I am not trying to be depressing this morning. But I really want for you to walk away this morning with an opportunity and a chance to seek God. To embrace the value of knowing Christ more than anything and to not wait for a moment when it all comes burning down to the ground before you realize that the math didn't add up, that the money was funny, and it doesn't actually work that way. Don't wait for a moment when everything has to come crashing down and burning to the ground. Let the value of knowing Christ flood the market today. <laughs> Like, let it flood the market and change the way that your life calculus works and what really matters. Can I ask, do you have the mind of Christ when it comes to the work of your life? I'm not just talking about your job, but the work of your life. Like, the, the deeds, the tasks, the practices that make up from the moment that you wake up to the moment that your head hits the pillow. The practices of your life. Do you have the mind of Christ in the way that you work? And is there anything about your, your job or employment status or lack thereof that is keeping you from having the mind of Christ, the humble king? How might you come to know Christ through your work? through good work, through the tasks and practices and deeds that draw you closer to the knowledge of Christ and his death and resurrection. This passage, Philippians chapter 3, the passage that talks about the value of knowing Christ above everything else that makes us count our losses and gains differently than the rest of the world. This was the passage for our family that we memorized and prayed together when we were living in a town called Bakersfield, California, and, and praying about this job opportunity in Nashville, Tennessee. Because it felt like, felt like the calculus was wrong. Because all of our life was, was out in California. And it seemed like it would be a major loss for us in so many ways to pack up a family of four and move it to Nashville, Tennessee. But God kept drawing us back to this Philippians 3 passage that what I once thought was gain, I now count as loss and, and the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. And as we prayed, God, would you just lead us closer to know Jesus? 
we just realized that the math of our old life didn't really add up. Pretty soon we were packing boxes. <laughs> we're going to enter into a time of prayer. And as we do that, I just want to invite you. If maybe you need a space to seek the Lord and to listen to what God is telling you about the math that your life is living by, about the calculus of your life right now. Maybe God's inviting you to take a better inventory. Maybe the way that you've been taking inventory doesn't really add up the way that you might think it does. If you need a space to just come and pray this morning, to kneel at an altar, even placing yourself in a posture of humility. We've said it so many times, altars are not magical places, but they are places that allow us to get humble before God, to humble ourselves, maybe even put ourselves in the posture where we might hear from the Lord saying, hey, the math doesn't work. And it's okay to admit it. It's okay to admit maybe even that your life's work does not add up the way that you thought that it did. It doesn't mean that you just have to give up. It doesn't mean that you have to give up or let it all come burning to the ground. In fact, it means probably that God has something to give you worth striving for, worth working towards. Good work in pursuit of Christ, of knowing Christ, of seeing the value of Christ above everything else. Throughout this series, every Sunday, we've been praying for a different kind of sector of the workforce. And today we specifically wanna pray for people who are in business and commerce, which might mean clerks or cashiers, salespeople, servers, business owners and business professionals. And that could be Etsy shoppers or eBay sellers. Anybody who does work in the business and commerce sector. And if that's you and you'd like to come and, and kneel at the altars just to receive a blessing that we'd love to pray over you today and the work that God has given you to do. Business work can be good work. It really, it can be good work that's ordered toward God's life-giving purposes. And so we'd love to pray a blessing over you if that, if that identifies you. But I hope that we all know today that that might be the work that you do. But who you are is found in Christ. And it is Christ who enables you to do good work. So if you'd like to come and pray just to have a quiet moment where you can ask God to show you how the math adds up or how it doesn't. Or if you are in business and commerce and you'd like to come and kneel just to have a place where we can pray a prayer blessing over you, I'm gonna go ahead and lead us in a time of prayer. And if you'd like to come and join us at the altars for prayer, we'd encourage you to do so. You can come on now as we pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the work that was done in Christ Jesus. The work of crucifixion and the work of resurrection. It's not just what you did for us, it's who you are. It is your heart of love for us. God, we have so much to give you thanks and praise for today. And Lord, we come with open hands. Opening our hands to show you what our life's work has been. Taking inventory of all the things that we thought we valued. 
Lord, if there are those today that are trying to take that kind of inventory right now, God, would you give them holy wisdom? Give them eyes to see. Give them honesty to be able to be really honest with you this morning what they've placed value in and what they have not and how it all adds up in the sake of, for the sake of your kingdom. Lord, we pray specifically today for the women and men who, who do good work in the sectors of business and commerce, the people who check us out at the grocery store and, and, and who make goods available for purchase, the, the people who do complicated tasks in offices and, and the people who do thankless tasks in restaurants, Lord people who work in front of a computer screen or, or, or work with people because they get people really well. Lord, we ask for your blessing to be over them. Lord, with these men and women who do good work in, in this sector of the economy, God, we ask that you would help them to order that work toward your life-giving purposes. That if there's any piece or part of that work that seems like it is life-sucking, God, that you would help them to learn how to let go of that and the things that are truly life-giving, not just for themselves, but also for their neighbors. Lord, would you help them to pour in, to strive and to press onward that they might know Christ through their good work in these places. Lord, we thank you for giving us good work to do. We ask that you would continue your good work in us that you have promised that you will bring to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And so, God, we make ourselves available for whatever work you would like to do in us today. We make ourselves available for that good work to be done, that we might work like Christ, whether it's in our occupation or our home, or our homes, our neighborhoods, the way that we interact with people online. Lord, would you order it all toward your life-giving purposes that we might experience new life in Christ. God, today we pray for the people of Trevecca Community Church and the work that you've given us to do. Lord, we pray for the work of your church around the world. We think specifically of the church in the Middle East right now, knowing that there are Nazarene churches and, and children of God in places like Israel where there's war and violence. And so God, we ask for your protection. We ask that you might bring peace that is beyond our understanding. Because clearly, Lord, our understanding is not good enough to bring peace. And so we ask for your peace and safety for your children all around the world. God, today, would you orient all of us toward your life-giving purposes? Would we be found new in Christ Jesus? We'll give you thanks and praise. Lord, all week, would you set us not only to the good work of our job, set us to the good work of prayer would we seek after you in prayer this week more than we ever have before to make prayer part of our good work? In these moments, Lord, we pray the prayer that your son Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. 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 Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to participate on a Sunday morning, we have service in our sanctuary at 1030 a.m. 
That service is also streamed to YouTube and is available in a podcast format. If you would like to give online, you're welcome to head to trevecca.church/give. All of our other church resources are also available on our website. Once again, however you choose to engage each week, we are grateful for you and you are loved.